to 7.30 p.m. Board of Directors meeting, third Monday of each month, 6 to 8 p.m. All meetings take place at WERU 1186 Acadia Highway in East Orland. For more information, call 469-6600 or email info at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages and all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, dirigo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. You're listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. Just a few seconds before Healthy Options starts, let's take a quick, quick, quick look at the weather. It looks like we're going to have some rain mainly uh, before 1 p.m. and temperatures rising to near 47 by 11 a.m. And then uh, it's going to be mostly clear tonight, sunny tomorrow. Increasing clouds on Thursday night. Friday will be mostly cloudy. It looks like a regular kind of a week, doesn't it? Stay tuned for Healthy Options. It's coming up in just a second. Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest today is Patsy Castos. And she's a registered licensed dietitian in Portland, Maine. Her practice focuses on gastrointestinal intestinal issues. Let's uh, spit out that gut issue here. <laughs> and she provides medical nutrition therapy for clients with celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and a variety of functional gut disorders. <laughs> she was an early adapter of the FODMAP approach, and we'll learn what that is um, as the uh, hour progresses. And that's used for irritable bowel syndrome. And she has also helped hundreds of clients by using this FODMAP diet process. Her 2009 book has just been revised. It's, and um, it is about diet and irritable bowel syndrome, and it's titled, titled IBS, Free at Last. And she's helped to bring more attention nationwide to the FODMAP approach. While Ms. Castos sees clients in her Portland practice, and by video chat throughout Maine, she also teaches and presents workshops throughout the U.S. and worldwide. Her extensive training includes a bachelor's degree in nutritional science from Cornell University and a master's degree in nutrition from Boston University. She completed her internship at Boston's Beth Israel Hospital, and she's a professional member of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America and the North American Society for the Study of Celiac Disease. Patsy Castos is a longtime board member and past president of the Maine Academy of Nutrition and Dietitians, and she was honored as the 2014 Outstanding Maine Dietitian of the Year. Welcome to Healthy Options, Patsy Castos. Well, thank you very much, Rhonda. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so we're going to discuss di- digestive, digestive health and um, all of that. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about what we're looking at, what, what's healthy, what's not, and we can, you know, as we're going to talk about a, a, the FODMAP diet and, and, uh, and what that means, we could at least get a groundwork of, of, what, of what we're talking about and what's, what we're doing. Okay. Well, uh, healthy means different things to different people. Uh, I do work primarily with people who have digestive diseases and disorders, um, they tend to be referred to me by uh, physicians or self-referred because they have some problems that they want to address through diet. Uh, these functional disorders, uh, which that basically means uh, that the person has a gut that doesn't function properly, even though there doesn't seem to be any apparent medical cause for the problem. So these functional disorders can be very difficult to treat. Uh, A lot of the conventional therapies that we have uh, don't work very well. Uh, For example, for many, many years, all we really had to offer people with irritable bowel syndrome was, um, you know, eat a higher fiber diet, drink more water, get more exercise. And, you know, people try as hard as they can to uh, follow those good healthy diet principles, but sometimes they are still left with very problematic symptoms. 
Mm. So let's discuss a little bit. We're, we're going uh, to talk about all the kinds of symptoms we can have. Um, Patsy, do you think you could just talk a little bit closer to the phone and a little bit louder? I think we'll get a better... I'll try. Yes. I know. I'm, I'm as close as I can be, actually. I don't know if yeah. turning up the volume here would yes, help Yes, that bit. might help a little. Is that helping? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's great. Thank you. All right. A good technical uh, uh, correction there. That's great. <laughs> so so what, what would we look for uh, normally? Uh, you know, as you said, it varies, but um, what, or what would be something that would need to be treatable, needed to be treated? Well, typical functional gut symptoms or IBS symptoms might be uh, excessive amount of gas, maybe too much flatulence, uh, abdominal bloating is common. Uh, abdominal pain uh, that can range from, you know, just a mild nuisance to fairly disabling at times. Mm. Also, these patients tend to have either diarrhea or constipation or both alternating with each other. So it's it's hard to talk about, you know, these aren't problems that people tend to trade notes on with each other, even though IBS is the second leading cause of absenteeism in the U.S., a very important problem economically. And quality of life is really affected for many of these patients. Uh, there was just a, a very interesting health economist uh, study that s- concluded that people with IBS would be willing to trade 10 to 15 years of their lifespan for an immediate cure. <laughs> That's pretty dramatic. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm sure many of our listeners are, are, are finding that. Uh, an interesting uh, uh, statistic as well, and and shocking as well. You know, I think it is partly because in our culture, this whole idea of digestion and having this conversation at all is uh, is something that we don't do. We're pretty uh, uptight little group, aren't we? <laughs> I think that's changing a little bit. Uh, you know, the advent of the internet, I think, has really helped people communicate with others in their health situation, and people are getting more uh, active in their own medical care because they can access information that used to only be available to healthcare professionals. Right. So what are you seeing in your practice? And, and, and tell us a little bit about what that, that, that strange-sounding diet situation is, the okay. FODMAP. Sure. Uh, so a FODMAP is an acronym stands for a bunch of uh, jargon <laughs> that refers to a group of certain sugars and certain fibers in the diet that are capable of triggering gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, it's a concept that was invented by researchers at Monash University in Australia. And at this point in time, there's a great deal of interest in it worldwide and a, a fairly large body of evidence that has accumulated to show that it is an effective dietary therapy for uh, IBS, about 75 to 80% of patients that are, you know, appropriate patients to put on the diet do get relief of their symptoms uh, often within a week, and that relief is durable. It, it stays with them over the long haul. So let, let me interrupt. Just is this the first time that we're actually getting some chemistry behind? behind the diet situation? Because you did mention this idea about fiber. And I know in my practice, people come in, well, I have IBS or I have gastrointestinal. My doctor said to eat high fiber, but it's not making a difference. Right. That is standard conventional therapy for IBS. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, yes. we there, before, you know, say 10 years ago, it was all we had. But uh, now we we have a lot more uh, alternatives in the diet department. But, but that really wasn't based on a, a lot of the kind of science that you're talking about. Yes. Right. Back back in the day, you know, there really wasn't a lot of science uh, right. to go on. So this is exciting um, that now we have some new ideas. Mm-hmm. So, so tell us what that FODMAP is now. Okay. So uh, an elimination diet, first of all, is a process. It's not just a list of high and low FODMAP foods. So when we work with FODMAPs, we um, help the patient go through this whole process. And at the beginning, I like to teach people what FODMAPs are, um, how they cause symptoms, and where they are in our food. So uh, first of all, 
the way they cause symptoms is uh, is like this. Uh, they have several things in common, these certain fibers and certain sugars in the diet. First of all, they're rapidly fermentable by the normal gut bacteria. And in that fermentation process, they produce a lot of gas, and that gives you gas. Um, the gas distends the intestines, blows them up a little bit like a balloon. And for people with IBS, that can be a very painful sensation and set off you know, a series of events that result in symptoms. The other thing these FODMAPs have in common is that they have the ability to pull wa extra water into the gut. For, so for those people that have diarrhea-predominant IBS, that can result in a lot of loose stools and urgent diarrhea. The other thing to know about FODMAPs is that they have a cumulative effect. So that means the more FODMAPs you eat from all different sources and the greater the load of FODMAPs, um, as it were, in, in a meal or snack, the more symptoms might be expected to result. So the... So people are inadvertently, perhaps, without education, no, not knowing that they're actually eating things that are making things worse. That's right. Um, a common ex example of that would be the person that thinks they might be lactose intolerant, but they just can't seem to figure it out mm -hmm. because, you know, they may have ice cream on one occasion and, you know, they're fine. And then the next time they have the same ice cream, they may end up having a bout of diarrhea or excess gas the next morning, say. But it's really about what they were eating it with. That's correct. Yeah. It may just be that on a bad day, without really realizing it, they might have consumed a lot of FODMAPs from other foods, and that ice cream just took the blame or it was kind of the last straw. So... It's not necessarily, and we're going to go into some specific foods, and I think in your, in your book, you, the third uh, edition of the IBS Free at Last book that you've written, um, there's even more ideas about some of the foods. Is that correct? Or? That's right. This is an, a really rapidly evolving area. Uh, all the research about the FODMAP content of foods comes from just a few labs, and they are publishing ongoing. So materials do tend to need frequent updating. And my third edition actually is, is in the works, but not yet published. Okay, but, but right. we have something to look forward to, but we can get the second edition, which has a lot of what we're talking about um, in it. That's right. Um, so, so, you know, it seems so mysterious. Let's, you said it was an acronym, and, uh, and, and so uh, perhaps you could tell us what they stand for and what that means. Sure. I'm good, I'll, I'll define the acronym, but then I'm going to move on quickly to right. uh, more accessible examples of for, for, how we uh, recognize them in our food. Okay? Yes, well, for the chemists in, in, uh, yes. amongst us, you know, they they might want some uh, some good uh, right. So, you know, good chemistry terms. FODMAP stands for fermentable, oligo, dye, and monosaccharides and polyols. We could break that down uh, one bit at a time, but I actually think oh, but, but, it would be more useful to talk about our food. Sure. Would that be okay? Yeah, that would okay. be fine. So the first... No, but all together now. Come on. Really, we can all... We, you should make this into a song, I think. Yeah, and then, yeah and that's we, a good idea. There you go. <laughs> go uh, ahead. Lactose, also known as milk sugar, is one of the important FODMAPs. Um, that is one of the disaccharides that's referred to in the acronym, and it is present in certain milk products. You know, luckily there are plenty of milk products that are are low in lactose and can be enjoyed by people who are trying a low FODMAP diet. And that reminds me to to say that uh, the foods that I'm going to name as sources of FODMAPs in the diet are definitely not bad foods, uh, with very few exceptions. Um, I don't judge these foods. I don't want to suggest that they're bad foods that people shouldn't be eating. Uh, I'm just uh, identifying their FODMAP status so that people can experiment with their diets. That's all. So um, I am not a fan of dairy-free diets per se. I'm really concerned about the lactose in certain milk products when it comes to FODMAPs. So that's the first one. 
The second one is fructose. Now, a lot of people are aware that fructose is added to our diet in the form of high fructose corn syrup. That's one we can live without. Uh, but honey and agave are also sources of fructose, as are all fruits. Fructose is primarily known to us as a fruit sugar. Uh, the next FODMAP or type of FODMAP um, is polyols. That's the P in FODMAP. And polyols are also known as sugar alcohols. They are natural sugars that are found in certain fruits and vegetables. And they can also be added as sweeteners in certain sugar-free gums and candies. So those three are the certain sugars. Then moving on, we have the certain fibers that are found in foods. And collectively, these are called oligosaccharides, which is the O in FODMAP. And wheat, rye, and barley are big contributors to the oligosaccharides in our diets. Now, some of your listeners might recognize those as the gluten grains. And this, uh, you know, there is a certain amount of overlap here uh, between gluten-free diet and low FODMAP diet because of this fact, but gluten is actually a protein in those grains, and when we're talking about FODMAPs, we're more interested in the type of fiber in those grains. So this is not a gluten-free diet, even though a certain number of gluten-free foods might work pretty well on, on the diet. Um, the next big sources of oligosaccharides are certain vegetables, especially onions and garlic which are so oh prevalent in our cuisine. Mm. Um, other sources are, include dried fruits, uh, beans, peas, large portions of nuts and seeds, and um, also inulin or chicory root, which uh, either of which can be added to food specifically to boost up the fiber content. So this is a pretty technical diet. That, that was a long list of foods. Um, we we do find that our patients learn more about how FODMAPs affect them if they limit all of these different FODMAPs in their diet together all at once for a short period of time, usually three or four weeks. Um, so it's a dietary experiment. It's not a permanent dietary prescription, and we certainly hope to get people back to eating any and all of these foods that they eventually learn they can tolerate. So... So what you're saying is that you're not necessarily telling people no dairy for you or no more nuts or no more fruit in your diet. What you're suggesting is that as an experiment, people will take things out. If you're ha And I would imagine if you're having a more severe reaction to foods, then of course you probably wouldn't want to eat whatever you've learned from your experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, but that would be different for every individual. That's right. Um, that's a major point here is really customizing this and coming up with an individual plan so that you don't have people who are just, you know, over-restricting their diet based on every laundry list they've ever read of, you know, foods that people shouldn't eat for digestive health. Right. Well, I do, and, and I think you tell, you tell me uh, about your, some of, of the things that you've seen, that people come in and they just aren't, aren't eating. You know, people are just really wasting away because everything they eat, they say, is a problem. And, and so on a liquid diet or very, very minimal protein or something like that, and we're having a lot of malnutrition. Do you, do you see that? In yeah, that is one type of patient that I, I see sometimes. You know, these patients really are feeling quite ill, and naturally they're looking for answers. And, you know, sometimes maybe over-limiting their diets based on all the information they've collected uh, here and there. Um, and these patients really need help cutting through the clutter. Um, and this, the FODMAP elimination diet, provides a process that can really help them do that. Uh, the other typical patient would be somebody who's really overall healthier and more resilient, and they may be eating a very nutritious diet and actually trying to actively improve their diet, you know, trying to purposely uh, consume more of these nuts and seeds and more fruit. Maybe, maybe they're into some of the food trends today like smoothies and juices, ju uh, juicing and 
various shake mixes and protein bars and that sort of thing. And in some cases, they're just getting too much of a good thing. Right. And so you think you're eating well. And in fact, because of, of these kinds of uh, sugars and, and the, the fermentation, you're actually hurting your gut. That's right. Some people just can't tolerate that much of certain of these FODMAPs. But um, I'd like to go back to what you were uh, referring to before uh, about uh, different ideas that people come in with um, with dietary restrictions. Uh, I think that it's interesting to think about the person that is trying to um, use a dairy-free, gluten-free diet to help themselves. Um, this is really common and popular type of diet, as you know. Uh, and, you know, there may indeed be people that have a, a dairy sensitivity, for example, that is, you know, affects their overall health by way of their immune system. They may have a dairy sensitivity. But for many, many people, uh, there's really only one component of that dairy that is related to their IBS symptoms, and that is lactose, the milk sugar. So unlike elimination diets that focus more on the identity of the food or the source of the food, uh, this diet really zeroes in on the individual food components, uh, which makes it important to have good, reliable information because otherwise it can be quite confusing. You know, why can you have this dairy product but not that one? This corn product is okay, but that one isn't. This soy product's okay, but that one isn't. because it's loaded with a different amount of the offending fermenting sugar, or correct. Okay, good. Let me let me just say uh, hold for a moment, Patsy, and people who have just joined us, you're listening to Healthy Options program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today's today's guest is Patsy Castos who is a registered and licensed dietitian and a practitioner and educator of the FODMAP approach to managing irritable bowel bowel syndrome. And I imagine that's useful for other kinds of syndromes as well, which we'll get into at another another moment. But um, so we are really having to change our ideas, what we've been talking about, about what the foods we eat are, because it's not about the food particularly, but it's about one component and and we can talk more about that. Can continue. This is so interesting. Thank okay. you. Okay. Is there a particular uh, type of food that you'd well, like to ask about? Well, you know, in the book, you're talking that um, the cabbage family you can have uh, you can have collards, but maybe not kale. You know, how do we? How, how does how do you? Know these things. I mean, we we is this because they've been chemically analyzed or? You know, let's talk about vegetables for a minute. Okay, good question. So, uh, as I mentioned, this concept was dreamed up over in Australia at Monash University. And they have one of the only labs in the world that is working to analyze foods for their FODMAP content. Um, Fresh fruits and vegetables can't be shipped from the U.S. to Australia. So these are primarily Australian foods that have been tested. So, you know, they're working as hard as they can, but they've still only analyzed, you know, several hundred foods, and there are, you know, thousands of foods in our our food supply. So sometimes we have actual hard data uh, to go on, and sometimes we have to uh, just make educated guesses so that we can offer some guidance in the absence of a complete database. So uh, typically with vegetables, they've because they're whole foods, uh, they tend to be pretty well represented in the FODMAP database so far. Uh, you know, realizing that they may be, the varieties may differ from the ones we have here, but still, uh, you know, I think we can, uh, it's fair to make a lot of assumptions that a Brussels sprout in Australia is going to be pretty similar to one here in the U.S. <laughs> yes, of course, with a different accent. But I, I'm that's sorry. right. That's right. Yes. Okay. But I digress. Continue. So, <laughs> corn is a very interesting vegetable. Okay, uh, because it's one of the more complicated ones. So 
sweet corn that's grown for its flavor and its its sugar content really is not suitable for a low FODMAP diet because it has a lot of these sugar alcohols in it naturally occurring. Uh, on the other hand, the varieties of corn that are grown for making cornmeal or popcorn um, are grown for their starch content, um, and starch is not a FODMAP. So those kinds of corn products tend to be uh, just fine for a low FODMAP diet. Likewise, if you were, you know, looking at corn oil, and I, um, that this would be true for oils made from any high FODMAP food, from nuts, from seeds, from soybeans, from uh, avocados. Avocados are high in FODMAPs, unfortunately. Mm. Um, um, all oils are low in FODMAPs because they don't have any sugars or fibers associated with them. So they're in the clear. Oh, very good. So someone could have sesame oil, for instance, or olive oil or... Absolutely. Safflower oil, those things. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's, now which, what's in the avocado that makes it high? What's, uh, that is the source of polyols. All right. And that's the, those are the, the sugar, sugar alcohols. alcohols. Now, does that mean that when we're, since this has to do with fermentation of sugar, does that mean that eating fermented foods is a problem or it depends which one? Um, so I'm thinking there are people who do lacto-fermented mm-hmm sauerkraut or miso or tempeh are those things allowed or in general yes uh only a few fermented foods have actually been lab tested though right uh tempeh has been lab tested that's considered low fodmap <clears throat> sourdough bread oh. it, um, traditionally done. made yeah it's got to be the real deal uh, that is low fodmap whereas ordinary bread made from wheat isn't uh they, the researchers at Monash uh, haven't published much on fermented foods and pickled foods, but theoretically it makes sense that those, those methods of processing would reduce the, the FODMAP content. So um, now with, so really a, when we're talking about grains, let's go back when you're talking mm-hmm. about wheat bread, mm-hmm. if you are having... What a, a traditional grain would that, you know, there was something in the book about, uh, maybe it wasn't about the grains, but about having bal- a balanced, no, it was about the sugar, that things got into to problem. We had problems when we started to use the high, uh, the, the mm. um, hydrogenated. Mm. High uh, fructose corn syrup. That's right. Because that's not balanced. That actually table sugar, which we all grew up with, was actually a better better for a FODMAP diet. Right. So that's getting a little bit into the nitty-gritty biochemistry of how we absorb fructose. Uh, Some of us just are not particularly good fructose absorbers. Uh, There are a couple of different ways we absorb it through the gut lining. One is just a passive diffusion. You know, the fructose just floats on through from our small intestine into our bloodstream. But the other mechanism for absorbing fructose is what they call an active transport mechanism, and it requires the presence of some glucose to work efficiently, kind of like having both feet on the pedals of a bicycle. So if you have a food such as honey uh, that has more fructose than glucose, there might be some fructose left over that does not get absorbed. And that makes it available to go on down the line to the large intestine where it can be fermented by gut bacteria. Which becomes a problem. Right. So the the sugars that don't have excess fructose work better uh, for people on this diet. And those include regular plain old sugar, uh, 100% pure maple syrup. Those really are the two best choices for a low FODMAP diet. So it's interesting. So we get to reevaluate, in in this case, um, what is actually a beneficial food and what is not. So avoid all sugar may really have a nuance to it. Right. That can be a little bit of overkill for some people. 
people right. the same way that, you know, just don't eat any gluten or don't eat any milk can be overkill. Right. And I love helping patients find out that, oh, my gosh, I really can enjoy some of these foods that I thought I shouldn't have. And I'm fine. Now, there may be other reasons not to do those foods, but it wouldn't be because of the FODMAP. Correct. So you get to have choices. Isn't right. that a right. radical idea? And so if someone comes in on a gluten-free diet, during the process of reintroducing foods, I would introduce uh, you know, non-gluten sources of the oligosaccharides separately from the gluten grains right. in case there might be some uh, learning that would, would come from that process. And if a person has a lot of symptoms that are outside the gut when they introduce gluten grains, for example, or reintroduce them, you know, if the gluten, eating gluten gives them a rash yes. or a headache or, you know, something uh, systemic like that, that increases the likelihood that they actually do have a gluten intolerance. And not everybody would. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Great. That's very interesting. So, so what we're really talking about, and I want to, I do want to get a little technical. That the food we obviously we're chewing, and that's mm -hmm. the beginning of our digestion. There are enzymes that happen, and then it goes to the stomach. But really, things start to get absorbed when we get to the small intestine. And you know, I don't, I don't think people really think about their small mm -hmm. intestine mm -hmm. all that much. Um, so, is that sometimes? A lot of the issue that we see as irritable bowel or digestive issues, really something that's hap starting to happen with a malabsorption, something not happening that should happen in the small intestine? Uh, to a point. Uh, for example, people uh, have difficulty absorbing lactose because most adults don't produce enough of the uh, lactase enzyme in their small intestines. That's very common. Uh, about half of white Americans with a European gene pool are somewhat or uh, quite lactose intolerant. Uh, people who are from East Asia or Native American or Sub-Saharan African descent um, you know, tend to have almost you know, 95 to 98% uh, lactose intolerance in those populations. So that definitely is an issue that occurs in the small intestine. The fructose absorption or poor absorption happens in the small intestine. Uh, sugar alcohols are poorly absorbed in general. Most of us, well, absorb only a fraction of those, uh, but only some of us are symptomatic when that happens. And, and what are those, just to remind us? Specifically, they're uh, sorbitol, mannitol, maltitol, xylitol. Ah. So those are additives that I, I remember, it, you know, they're in sugar substitutes in gums and, and you said this at the beginning, but now I think it's, we're getting a bigger picture. Yeah. What are th those other, what other foods that would be more regular, you know, everyone doesn't eat right. those kinds of things. Right. So fruits and vegetables that are natural sources of sorbitol and mannitol oh. include um, mushrooms, Wheat corn, cauliflower, um, all the stone fruits, apples and pears. Oh. Yeah, that's what makes some of those foods so tasty. Um, it's also the, the food component that gives prunes their reputation for having a laxative effect, which certainly can work to the advantage of some people. Um, other people can consume loads and loads of prunes because that's what their mother always did and that's what their doctor suggested and they can be in quite a bit of of uh, pain and discomfort from eating those foods. So so the 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 picture is this is so interesting about and that's from the small intestine. That's not being able to absorb in that particular area. That's right. And then I would say someone with these different with somebody diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome or someone not diagnosed or just a mild form may actually have an intolerance. Can you have an intolerance to just one of those things in the FODMAP? Yeah, sometimes that is the outcome of the process that, you know, the person can really narrow it down to, oh my gosh, I never realized how 
lactose intolerant I was. <laughs> other, or, time, other times, you know, they really do have to uh, keep their overall diet moderately low. Well, I know people think about that, but can, I, I, and lactose, I think intolerance is something people understand more, but I never realized that I had, what is it, the poly... The polyols. I never realized occurring. I had a polyol dif- difficulty. Can you have that without having some of the other things? Yes. So I just can't have fruit. Or, you know. Or, more likely, if I want to have fruit, I need to choose low polyol fruit. There you go. And I need to keep the portions small if I decide I want to, you know, treat myself to an apple. Right. And I'm not going to have, you know, a, the apple on top of a milkshake and a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always, I think, a wise nutritional yes. decision yes. anyway. Um, yes. Um, again, if people have just tuned in, you're listening to Healthy Options program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today, today's guest is Patsy Castos. Am I sp- Cat, catsos. It's catsos. Yes. Catsos. We're getting yeah, that right. Like a kitty cat in trouble. There you go. <laughs> Very good. And we're discussing medical nutritional therapy in, uh, and the FODMAP approach to uh, managing uh, a variety of gut disorders, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel diseases. Um, tell me a little about, we, we've kind of gone around the edges. Someone comes to you, how, how do we approach this? We mentioned an elimination diet and adding things in, but let's talk a little bit more specifically about what the process is. Okay. So uh, my preference is to have the patient uh, have had a proper evaluation and diagnosis uh, with IBS. Uh, Irritable bowel syndrome. Correct, yes. Um, ideally, they should have probably had celiac disease ruled out because uh, the low FODMAP diet tends to be a a very low gluten diet, although not necessarily gluten-free. And we know that the symptoms of celiac disease and IBS overlap quite a bit. And yet eating a low gluten diet uh, makes it difficult to get accurate test results for celiac disease. So we don't want to interfere with any future studies that might be planned to see if this patient really might have celiac. So good diagnosis of IBS, celiac disease ruled out. Um, the, it's important to have tried the more conventional therapy because, you know, fiber does have a lot of well-known health benefits. So if eating a higher fiber diet makes you feel better and helps you manage your symptoms, you should definitely be doing that. Uh, But typically by the time somebody gets to my office, they've already uh, given that a good try (laughs) and found that it hasn't relieved their symptoms. So then I would typically, you know, assess them to make sure they're really a good candidate for the diet. Uh, First of all, they have to be willing and able to do some experimentation with their diet safely, uh, which isn't really true for everyone. Uh, and then there has to be some dietary history consistent with this idea. You know, if they're already eating a low FODMAP diet, you know, if someone comes to me and says, my symptoms are terrible, even though I'm eating nothing but chicken and rice, you know, there's nowhere to go with that. Mm. That history is not consistent with uh this being a successful approach. So typically the history would either be uh, the person is currently consuming a high FODMAP diet or they have a history of having self-limited a lot of foods because when they ate FODMAP-containing foods, they had symptoms. But they didn't know why. Right. They right. just had, you know, a reaction. observed over the years that they couldn't tolerate beans or yogurt or this or that. So, so if someone, you would say, what you're saying is that if someone is really on a very restricted chicken and rice, which would be very low FODMAP, um, and is still having problems, you would say, well, we, you need to get further. We need to know what's going on because it's not this. Right. You would say. Now, I, I am going to digress, and I do. we will get into the very specifics, but 
Um, when we talked about the small intestine, the small, the SIBO, the bacteria there, is that something we could talk about as well? In, or is, is that one of those things that would be different? Because well, people have t- been talking about that. Yeah, I think that we should talk about that for a minute. Okay. So there's what I would call an emerging diagnosis um, that goes by the name of uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or small bowel bacterial overgrowth. Uh, SIBO for short, um, that probably is a treatable cause of IBS-like symptoms for some people that have so far, you know, just been carrying a diagnosis of IBS. Um, If for some reason uh, you do have bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine, um, where typically most of the gut bacteria are confined to the large intestine, you can be quite symptomatic with abdominal pain and bloating and some of these other IBS-like symptoms. Um, So that is something that we're seeing more uh, people being diagnosed with and treated for. Um, And low FODMAP diet can be a good uh, companion to that uh, medical treatment of that condition. So what you're saying is some of the the irritation from the FODMAP foods can be a culprit for some people. That's right, okay. yeah. If, if uh, gut bacteria can get a hold of these FODMAPs in the small intestine, even before you've had a crack at absorbing them, um, you can imagine how that could that be, very be an painful. uncomfortable situation. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's very good news for some people. Yes, it is. Um, it's still kind of a poorly developed area though of of uh, medicine and there's not a really uh, good consensus about how to diagnose and treat SIBO. So, so oh. I, 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 I know uh, some some people I've spoken to they, they needed to drink a large amount of glucose and then it was measured in their exper, uh, you know exhaling right uh, there the gases is, there is a breath test that is in use for um, trying to find out whether a person has SIBO that does involve drinking a test sugar like glucose or lactulose. Uh, That's not lactose, but lactulose. Uh, And when you drink those sugars, um, once the bacteria uh, get access to them, they ferment them and they produce a lot of either hydrogen or methane gas. And some of that gas you just pass, but some of it gets absorbed into your bloodstream and can be measured in your exhaled breath. So um, if you have the person drink the test sugar and then measure their exhaled breath every 15 minutes for a few hours, you can use the timing of when they started producing a lot of breath, hydrogen, or methane to try to decide if there's bacterial overgrowth high up in the, in the GI tract. Very interesting. So I know that there's some antibiotics that are being used. And in, in, in my world, um, I've just gotten some emails from a variety of people going, how to treat SIBO? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's become the, as you said, the emerging diagnosis right? in Chinese medicine and in some homeopathic uh, worlds. Mm-hmm. But um, so good. So so people can be thinking about that as well. If if uh, you've been doing some of the things that uh, we've been talking about and things aren't getting better to to consider some of these other ideas. That's right. Bring it to your doctor. You know, there are various ideas out there about how to eat uh, to help reduce uh, fermentation uh, in the small intestine if you have SIBO. Uh, There's really nothing evidence-based yet. Uh, The low FODMAP diet, I think, is as good as any of them, um, uh, you know, based on the just common sense that reducing your intake of rapidly fermentable carbohydrates, you know, would help limit the, the uh, favorite food supply of those bacteria. So um, the, um, the idea of grains, because there are some people now, the, the grain gut, mm-hmm. you know, brain grain, you know, fog. (laughs) Um, That's not, are there, what grains are are acceptable? There seems to be a lot, like millet and, yeah. Yeah, the the 
gluten-free grains like millet and quinoa and rice and so on tend to be low in FODMAP. So there's really quite a few to choose from. Um, the, the, so the fibers in uh, the FODMAP fibers, the oligosaccharides, interestingly, aren't absorbed by any of us getting back to the, you know, what happens in the small intestine. That's actually part of what defines them as fiber. So for every human on earth, um, those oligosaccharides will continue down the line to the large intestine where, where they are fermented by the normal gut bacteria. And that's the way our bodies are functioning normally. It's physiological. There will be some fermentation in the gut. Um, that fermentation actually produces some valuable substances for us, some short-chain fatty acids, which are very nourishing to the gut. Some uh, vitamins are produced by those gut bacteria. So we're not trying to uh, stamp out fermentation altogether. We're just trying to keep it to a, a, a level that does not produce uncomfortable or, or painful symptoms. Uh, so... A lot of those grains that you mentioned, uh, the gluten-free grains, are fermentable. They do have some fiber in them, but they're not as rapidly fermentable types of fiber as those in the, the gluten grains. And those are the ones that, in, a, in an East Asian nutritional perspective, are recommended mm-hmm. quite often, uh, obviously not knowing about FODMAPs, but... Um, but as things that help give, that people can digest, that are, are good um, sources of, as you said, vitamins and minerals and things like that, but um, are usually uh, very easy for people to mm-hmm. tolerate. Mm-hmm. So we're agreeing on that. Um, I guess the idea of the paleo diet of no grains and lots of meat would, I would, you could, one could do that on this diet if you cho- chose. One could. Like, yeah. For- uh, I, I think that's, uh, you know, if people find that their IBS symptoms are, are better on that type of diet, that might be a strong clue that there's some FODMAP intolerance going on. There you go. Right. Mm-hmm. So these are all um, experiments and education for yourself about what works. So let's go back now. Um, I think we've covered a lot to... to, to um, to say what happens, so there is someone that you can work with, yep. and and I think they're a good we... candidate for the diet, right? Um, I would then ask them to, you know, use the tools and uh, that I have here at the practice, or uh, I uh, my latest book project is an IBS free recipe book, yes. and it has the you know really up to date food lists of low FODMAP foods. Um, And I ask them to use those tools to try to choose only low FODMAP foods for the next few weeks and to monitor their symptoms uh, somewhat casually. I'm not a a fan of really intensive food and symptom diaries during this stage of the process, but to just monitor their symptoms overall. um, And when we next meet, we talk about whether they felt better or not, you know, whether this uh, seems to be a promising line of inquiry. Um, and in a way, that's just the beginning of the process because next we uh, make a plan to reintroduce each type of FODMAP to the diet. And we do it in a really kind of structured way that isolates the variables so that over you know a particular week, we're only experimenting with what happens if we reintroduce lactose or what happens if we reintroduce Uh, oligosaccharides. Uh, And then through that process and through monitoring symptoms and at that point doing a little food, a little more food and symptom diarying, we can really narrow it down in many cases. And so the eventual goal would be that you, you know, if there were certain FODMAPs that didn't bother you, you'd go back to eating them as, as you were. (laughs) Uh, And if you do identify a problem area, it's rarely a matter of, you know, never eating that type of FODMAP again. Uh, but, you, you know, with the awareness that if you eat too much of that, uh, 
FODMAP, you're going to regret it later, uh, you can decide what you want to do. You know, it's really up to the patient, but people really appreciate having that understanding of how these, these foods affect their bodies and being able to decide, you know, if they have uh, important events coming up that they, they know they have a, a safe way to eat that will keep their symptoms to a minimum. And other times they may choose to have whatever it is and, you know, endure the, the consequences. <laughs> if they choose, right. So, um, by the way, uh, if you've just tuned in, you are listening to Healthy Options program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest today is Patsy Katsos, and we're learning about food map, FODMAP, FODMAP, mm-hmm. an approach to manage IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, a term which covers several different gut disorders, as we have been discussing. So let's talk about some more specific foods, just to, to kind of get a, an, an idea of how wide really this diet is now I, I see some people were concerned and you're in the back of the book about getting enough minerals and mm-hmm. vitamins mm-hmm. and here you you have a, an entire list of things that are vitamin D vitamin B1 vitamin B2 so we can look at foods in that manner or we could look at groups of foods so we we talked about some grains so people can have low low FODMAP grains. We talked about some uh, vegetables. What about meats and, and fish and things along those lines? How does... uh, right. Well, since meat, fish, poultry, and eggs don't have any sugars or fibers associated with them, they are unrestricted on okay. a low FODMAP diet. Okay. But you bring up an excellent point, and it's one we shouldn't just skip over, um, and that is that the fact that you know there are some theoretical concerns about nutrient intake on a low FODMAP diet. I think um, most of them really only come into play if the the person has other dietary restrictions that they adhere to, because um, I believe there really are a great number of really nutritious, good sources of nutrition that are available for a few weeks on a low FODMAP diet. Where people start getting into trouble is if they're also a vegan or they've also decided you know, that they don't like vegetables or, you know, or maybe they have other medical conditions that limit their ability to take in, you know, some large food group or, or list of foods. Then they have to start wondering, you know, as they add a dietary restriction in the form of a low FODMAP diet, if they're going to get enough nutrition. Uh, and that's a, a valid concern. Uh, the, the one nutrient that I think is most important and perhaps most at risk for many people on this diet is the question of whether you're going to get enough uh, dietary fiber because uh-huh. dietary fiber is, uh, as we know, uh, the whole idea here revolves around changing the food supply for the gut bacteria, but you want to make sure that you're not uh, doing it in such a way that you'll deprive them of the ability to provide us with health benefits through fermentation. So that is one area that needs a little extra attention for most people. But even there, you know, there are plenty of good prebiotic foods that one can eat on a low FODMAP diet, um, including those, uh, the non-gluten grains that we discussed before. You know, there are a few legumes. So that would be the millet and the quinoa. Right. For those who just tuned in. Yep. Uh, nuts and seeds, you, uh, most of them are suitable for the diet in a small portion, you know, like a handful at a time. Uh-huh. Uh, th- there are a few legumes, for example, canned, drained lentils and chickpeas that can be included in the diet on a regular basis to keep one's prebiotic intake up. Because you said lentils are a problem. Lentils are an interesting uh, study. So... If because uh, FODMAPs are water-soluble but not oil-soluble, we can use that water solubility to our benefit in some cases. So if, if you eat canned lentils that have been sitting in the can soaking for six months and then you drain them and rinse off that canning water, a lot of the FODMAPs go down the drain 
they have leached out into the canning water. On the other end of the spectrum would be if you made yourself a bowl of homemade lentil soup where you're actually consuming the soaking and cooking water, uh-huh. you're consuming the maximum. What if you soak them? It would help, but not to the same degree. You know, the, a 12-hour soak would not, you know, remove as many FODMAPs as, you know, a three-month soak in a can. Oh, interesting. Again, shaking up our mm-hmm. conception of what is healthy eating, yes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it would be, that would be... Um, what about pressure cooking again and then washing after? No? Still the same thing. Yeah, more or less the same thing. Yes. Hmm. Okay. So you can you can do that. Um, and hmm. what else? So we were talking about good sources of nutrition, nutrition. on a low FODMAP diet. Right. So you can still eat uh, lactose-free uh, cow's milk, lactose-free yogurt, made from cow's milk. There are brands available. Hmm. Um, natural cheeses are virtually lactose-free. You mean the ones that are uh, raw? Mm, I was thinking more things like a real cheddar cheese oh. or oh, okay. Swiss or uh, right. brie, you know, any anything as opposed to a processed cheese. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. So there are several good uh, milk products to keep you going. Uh, the low FODMAP Fruits include things like blueberries and strawberries and bananas and uh, oranges, uh, kiwi, grapes, pineapple. There's cantaloupe, honeydew. There are quite a few to choose from. Uh, So uh, those are all possible. However, most are recommended to be uh, limited to a portion of about a half a cup. Uh, Let's see. We have plenty of salad vegetables to pick from. Most of the greens are low FODMAP. Kale has since been measured in the lab Ah. and is uh, now considered low FODMAP. Oh, good. (laughs) Smile. Uh, We've got a lot of good roasting vegetables and grilling vegetables to choose from, things like summer squashes and uh, portioned amounts of the orange squashes. Winter. so that's all good. Uh, the big, yeah. the big difficulty in the kitchen, uh, when it comes to vegetables, is the fact that onion and garlic are not on the short list. But you did have this great recipe where you can, right? You can cook it. You can because, again, because the FODMAPs are water soluble rather than oil soluble, it's possible to use garlic infused oil to get mm-hmm. flavor into your food without the FODMAPs. So you would, um, well, you have to cook it, obviously, oil, and otherwise you'll have botulism. Or, right, yes. and homemade uh, garlic-infused oil really should be either used or discarded within four days because of the risk of botulism. Uh, um, I put mine in the freezer. <laughs> That's great. It's easy to just scrape some out with a fork. Oh, uh, yummy. Even when frozen. Well, you know, uh, uh, Patsy, we're we're really coming to the end. I see we could just continue on and on here. And, you know, you do have the IBS free recipe book for the whole family. And I think you wrote that with uh, Lisa Rothstein and Karen Warman. And, um, and then we also have the IBS free at last and um, which are available. And you can... Um, Certainly uh, take advantage, everyone, of all of these things. We're just getting into all the good recipes. I'm (laughs) sorry that we're running out of time here. But I do want to say that uh, this has been so interesting. And let's see, where people can reach you, you're in Portland, but you do video. Right. I met Nutrition Works in Portland, and uh, we do accept most insurances um, other than main care, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we get pretty good insurance reimbursement. And I prefer to see people face-to-face the first time, but sure. then I can do these video chat Great. follow-ups if you look so, far away. Good. So would the 772-6279 be a good number? That would be perfect. And nutritionworks.us. Us. Thanks for joining us today, really, uh, uh, Patsy. This has been fabulous. Um, if you uh, want to hear this program again, it will be streaming on weru.org, and it, and it will be on the website after a few weeks as well. But I want to thank you, Patsy Katzos, uh, for joining us today on Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and I want to thank John Greenman 
for engineering for us today. I want to thank Petra Hall, as always, for her production assistance. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and I am wishing you the best of health. Support for WERU comes from Susan Bakley and Chris Marshall at the 13th Moon Center in Montville, offering shamanic healing, art from the heart, through art, therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at 13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. Hi, this is Amy Brown, host of Maine Currents. This week we'll be opening the phone lines and asking which of the presidential candidates do you support and why? Local folks who are working on the campaigns will be joining us to answer your questions as well. And if you'd like to join us in that capacity, please email news at weru.org. Otherwise, tune in on Wednesday at 4 and let Maine Currents and your neighbors know 